Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Derby, 2016. During the 2010s in the UK, divorces remained at a fairly steady rate, hovering between 114,000 and 119,000 each year. The multitude of factors which interplay between a couple that make them decide that they want to spend the rest of their lives together and which leads them to wed are unique to each pairing. Similarly with divorce, why it happens and what sort of relationship the parting pair have post-separation is just as unique. For Jeff and Cheryl Seggy of Derby, the split was entirely amicable. Wed in 1985, their first five years of marriage saw the birth of their oldest son, Dan, with their second and final child, Ben, coming along five years later. The couple remained together all through their boy's childhood. However, by 2014 and following their divorce, Jeff and their eldest son Dan were living together, renting a three-bedroom ex-council house in Mackworth, in Derby, with Cheryl started a new life in the family home. Though separated, the family weren't detached. Not unlike the house in Mackworth, they were what you might call semi-detached. Jeff and Cheryl would speak or text every day, with Cheryl still retaining access to his finances and transferring money between his accounts as and when Jeff required. What to an outsider might seem a slightly strange arrangement worked for the family. Cheryl worked at the bank where Jeff held his accounts and maintained a close bond between the divorce couple. The sons too remained close to their parents, with Dan living with his father and Ben, the youngest, a work colleague of Jeff at Available Car, a large used car showroom in Castle Donington, a 20 minute drive east of Mackworth. As they grew older, the lives of the two boys took very different trajectories. Where Ben had a passion for cars, He has his own business in the industry still today. Dan's path is a more slightly chaotic one. By 2016, after a series of differing and short-lived jobs, he'd found work at a care home and had seemingly found something he could settle into and flourish. He was finding contentment in his personal life too. He was in a loving and caring relationship with a girl called Zoe. The mother of two had welcomed the 30-year-old Dan into her life and that of her two young children. The four of them formed a strong and loving unit, enjoying days out and nights in with the three of them, caring for and providing for the children as though they were his own. It was in just such a spirit of quasi-familial support that Dan and Zoe had arranged to go shopping on the 1st of December 2016. With payday just gone, 
it was a chance to get a few things for Christmas and also pick up some winter coats for the children. As arranged, Dan dropped Zoe a message just before 10 in the morning to say he was on his way over. 10.30 came and went though. So did 11.30. Midday and mid-afternoon passed too. Dan never arrived. There was no word from him either. It wasn't unusual for Dan to change plans at the last minute or get a call from work. Just a day earlier, he'd had to go to hospital and get his finger seen to after injuring it at the care home. Maybe it turned out that his finger had been worse than he thought and that he just hadn't let on. It was unusual for him not to have messaged Zoe at all and her attempts to ring him having gone straight to voicemail. Zoe got in the car and drove round to his house in Mackworth. As she turned left down Sloan Road into Marlebone Crescent, ahead of her, Zoe noticed the road closed, her way blocked by a line of blue and white police tape. As she pulled over, she got out and approached the constable, guarding what she wasn't yet to discover was a crime scene. She noticed on the pavement. In the garden and on the road in front of Dan's house, there was a huge amount of police activity. Illuminating the early winter darkness, the streetlight showed her figures in white forensic suits, moving delicately but deliberately past the recycle bins and through the open white PVC front door. Approaching the constable in a state of shock, fear and bewilderment, Zoe stumbled in her inquiry as to what was going on. The constable's reply, that a body had been discovered in the house, was the very last response she'd been expecting. As well as either speaking to his ex-wife Cheryl or texting her every morning, Jeff Seggy would call his youngest son Ben to wish him good morning and confirm that he'd be picking him up as the pair travelled into work together every morning. They were both employed, though in different departments, at the same car showroom and although the call didn't really serve any practical purpose, it was just one of those little family rituals. The sort that nobody really knows how it started but but that it caused concern if it didn't occur. In keeping with every other workday morning, on the 30th of November, two days before Zoe would be told of the body found at Marlebone Crescent, Ben's phone alerted that a message from his dad had arrived. Jeff was feeling unwell and wouldn't be going into work. Ben wasn't to worry and Jeff would see him tomorrow. Although unexpected, both of the content of the message and the fact that Jeff had messaged and not called, there was no real reason not to believe his dad, so Ben carried on with his morning routine and headed off as normal to Castle Donington and work. Another phone received a morning text message. As well as good morning, Jeff asked his ex-wife Cheryl if she could transfer £100 from his savings account into his current account. 
Cheryl dutifully did as she'd done numerous times before and switched the funds between accounts, giving the request no further thought. No further thought, that was, until the following day. That morning, Ben had received not a message this time, but a call from his dad's phone, again crying off work, again saying there was nothing to worry about. What was strange about the conversation, though, wasn't that he couldn't remember the last time his dad had missed two consecutive days off work ill, but that, through the hoarse whispers of a sick man, Ben was convinced it wasn't Jeff on the line. It was someone impersonating him. Now worried, and after several failed attempts to speak to his father, Ben confessed his concerns to his mother Cheryl. Further attempts at contact were made, but given that neither had actually spoken to either Jeff or Dan in 48 hours, and the increase in anxiety that they felt, the pair decided they had no further option but to contact the police. A police welfare check, or as it's known in the UK, a safe and well check, is, as prescribed by the College of Policing, the act of a police officer attending to ascertain the welfare of an individual or individuals, either in their place of residence or a public place. Powers of an officer to undertake such a check are limited, as is the practicality that, Every time someone is concerned for a friend or a family member, officers will immediately respond. That within hours of receiving a call from Ben regarding the whereabouts of Jeff and Dan Seggy, the police were forcing entry to the house on Marlebone Crescent, suggests that the accumulative evidence from him and his mother must have been compelling. Nobody had seen or could say with confidence that they'd heard directly from either man for almost two days. Neither had been to work, and with the house dark and silent, Jeff's black Honda Civic missing from the drive, it would have been with apprehension that the police forced entry. Entering through the front door, the lounge to the left, the kitchen ahead and to the right, they found both rooms empty. Nothing out of place, no reason for suspicion. A sharp right turn inside the front door and up the stairs. Shouts of a Jeff and Dan were made and unanswered. On the landing, three bedrooms, the furthest left and overlooking the street, the door slightly ajar. Eased open, stepping inside, a metallic taste to the air, eyes flirting to the source. The bed, upon it, the naked body of a man near drowned in an ocean of blood-soaked sheets, a lifeless torso, punctured and torn and pitted with wounds. The rest of the house, empty. No other room disturbed. One man found, the other missing. One man, the other abducted or fleeing. The search began. The Angel Hotel in Cardiff is one of the most storied hotels in the country. Marlena Dietrich famously asked the kitchen staff if there was room in the fridge for her makeup. 
the great Wales rugby sides of the 70s had stayed there on the night before internationals at the old Cardiff Arms Park Stadium, just across the road. It's a joyous image of an amateur of the game, that the great side of Gareth Edwards, J.P.R. Williams, Barry John Natal had finished breakfast in the morning before walking en masse through the lobby, well wishes cheering them while hanging from every available balcony and stair. A male voice choir singing them out onto Westgate Street. More crowds, more voices. The throng parting to allow passage for the heaven-sent heroes. Shouts of pub luck Cymru, good luck Wales in Welsh, had cut through the hymns and arias as their gladiators from the gods set forth into battle. In earlier times, before the advent of such extravagant facilities at the ground as changing rooms, Players had pulled on their dragon red shirts in the hotel, the sound of boots and studs echoing around the lobby like the opening barrage of a machine gun at war. Sorry. Sorry. I am um, quite a fan of Welsh rugby and I might have let a little bit of romantic nostalgia take over for a minute. Um, I apologise. It won't happen again. Um, where were we? Oh, Cardiff, Westgate Street. Yeah, the Angel Hotel. As the police were forcing entry to the house shared by Jeff and Dan Seggy, a plaque Honda Civic was caught by CCTV cameras driving down Castle Street in Cardiff. The walls of the castle to the right and to the passenger side of the vehicle, a subway restaurant. The vehicle carries on with what looks like purpose along Castle Terrace before taking a sharp left onto Westgate Street the entrance to the Angel Hotel, sitting as it does on the corner of the junction. The car then drives a few hundred yards down Westgate Street, before indicating left and passing through the barrier of the car park at the rear of the hotel. The lifting and falling of the barrier is caught on security cameras, and a few minutes pass before a figure leaves the car park, passing back in front of the camera and back out onto Westgate Street. The footage is grainy and without colour, but from what can be made out, the individual is relatively stocky. He's wearing what look like jeans and a dark top. On his head, either to protect him from the winter winds or to try and obscure his identity, he's wearing a dark coloured bobble hat. It'll be days before this CCTV footage is found and brought to the attention of the same investigators who at this very moment trying to identify the body of a man found blooded and brutally murdered 150 miles away in Derby, days before the identity of the poor soul is confirmed, days before they realise that the other resident of the house hasn't been abducted or is hurt but is alive and well, days before Derbyshire police can say with any sort of surety that Dan Teggy has in all likelihood murdered his father Jeff and is now on the run. Any initial thoughts of investigators that the murder of Jeff Seggy was a burglary gone wrong were quickly dismissed. The brutality and frenzied nature of the attack brought upon him suggested what is often described as overkill. 
any number of the knife wounds inflicted upon him would have ended Jeff's life. That as many as 60 were found across Jeff's chest, neck and face, as well as 20 blows from what was thought to be a hammer, suggested that the attack was personal and driven by a focused rage, rather than unintended necessity. The absence of Dan, as well as Jeff's missing car, pointed to a potential perpetrator. Despite the understandable disbelief which was rooting itself amongst his family and girlfriend Zoe. Dan had previously never come to the attention of the police. For an individual's first crime to be a murder, particularly one so savage, was unusual to say the least. In conversations with Ben, it was slowly dawning that the person who he was never sure was Jeff, whom he'd spoken to on the phone just a day earlier, was in all likelihood Dan. A thought Ben had banished from his mind as soon as it was suggested by his instinct. Then there was the issue of the message to Jeff's ex-wife, Cheryl, to transfer £100 between accounts. Had that possibly been Dan too? Accessing Jeff's bank records, it could be seen that over the previous 24 hours, £300 had been withdrawn from a nearby cash point, as well as a further £100 withdrawn over the counter at a branch of his bank. Requests for CCTV from both the ATM and the branch were requested, as well as sites at which Dan's own bank card had been used. Over the next couple of days, a picture of Dan's movements and the 48 hours before the discovery of his father's body gradually began to emerge, creating a timeline which, in relation to the initial indications of when Jeff had been killed, would prove chilling. Finishing work on Tuesday the 29th of November was the last time anyone saw Jeff Segi alive. Early suggestions as to when he was killed, which were confirmed at post-mortem, are that sometime in the early evening he was stabbed 60 times, the knife having a 12-inch blade. He was also struck 20 times with a ball hammer. The injuries from both weapons grouped almost exclusively around the head, neck and chest area. Discovered naked on the bed, where the majority of the attack took place, the hypothesis was that Jeff was set upon while preparing for bed, his assailant striking first from behind and while he was in his most physically vulnerable position. CCTV footage and bank records indicated one other incident of note that evening. Dan was seen on CCTV visiting a local Chinese takeaway and ordering food. Food with which he'd return home, the very home in which his father lay dead. The following day, Wednesday the 30th of November, is when Ben received a text from Jeff's phone to say he'll be ill and he'll be taking the day off work. Around the same time that Jeff's ex-wife receives the message, again from Jeff's phone, requesting the transfer of £100 between two of his accounts. At some point, after these messages are sent, Dan leaves the house on Marlborough Road and goes to the A&E department at Derby Royal Hospital. Presenting to nurses with a deep wound to a finger on his right hand, Dan explains that he's cut his hand making a sandwich and makes light of the incident. After leaving the hospital, Dan is then seen in footage, 
making light of the injury with a cashier at a branch of his father's bank. His purpose for being there? To fraudulently withdraw money from Jeff's account. It is at some point that afternoon that Dan messages his girlfriend Zoe. During the message, he explains that he's been at hospital as a result of an injury to his finger he received at work, joking that he'd been a brave little soldier and arranging to go Christmas shopping with her the following morning. Dan's final known movements on that Wednesday, just 24 hours after killing his father, are caught on the security cameras at McDonald's, just a two-minute drive from his home. Pulling up outside in Jeff's black Honda Civic, he enters the restaurant, orders, waits and collects his food before returning to the car and driving away. In the crystal clear images, captured as he stands by the till in McDonald's, his face is clearly recognisable, as is what he's wearing. Jeans, a black top and a dark woollen bobble hat. The same jeans, top and bobble hat he's seen wearing while in his father's bank earlier in the day. The same jeans, jumper and bobble hat that the stocky figure will be wearing when he's caught on grainy CCTV footage at the Angel Hotel car park in Cardiff the following afternoon. It wasn't until the morning of Dan's fleeing to Cardiff that the suspicions were raised that all might not be well at Marlebone Crescent. Ben received a call which he was meant to believe was his father Jeff, explaining that he was still ill and be having another day off work. To Ben's mind though, something wasn't right. Though rasping and croaky, the effects presumably of whatever had laid him low, his father didn't sound like his father. As ludicrous as it might sound, Ben began to entertain the idea that someone was impersonating Jeff. But to what end? After sharing his worries with his mum Cheryl, the pair were in agreement that Ben should call the police and report his concerns. This he did, by mid-morning, at about the same time as Dan had already messaged Zoe to say he was on his way round, only never to turn up. It was, in all likelihood, a lack of belief that his attempt to impersonate Jeff to Ben had been altogether successful that prompted him to flee. He may have intended to actually meet up with Zoe. We may never know. What is known, though, is that after spending two days under the same roof with his father whom he'd murdered, Dan decided to make a run for it. Again donning his black sweater and bobble hat, he's seen that same morning withdrawing cash from Jeff's bank account at an ATM close to his home. It's not known where he filled up Jeff's car with fuel, whether in Derby or somewhere on the road, but automatic number plate recognition, AMPR, tracks the Honda Civic travelling west across Staffordshire and through south to Cardiff. It's at this point that CCTV sees the vehicle passing the subway on Castle Terrace in Cardiff, turning left onto Westgate Street, and pull into the car park at the rear of the Angel Hotel. Moments later, the bobble-hatted Dan Seggy is recorded disappearing off into the crowd of Cardiff Christmas shoppers. All of this, the last 48 hours in which Dan has murdered his father and fled the scene, has happened, all happened, before Jeff's body has been discovered by Derbyshire police. A discovery after which 
Dan's mother and brother and girlfriend Zoe will feel the agony not just of the death of Jeff, but with a fear as to what the fate has befallen Dan. While those who knew Dan couldn't conceive of circumstances in which he'd be responsible for his father's death, it wasn't long before the police came to that exact conclusion. By the following morning, Friday the 2nd of December, a full investigation team had been established by Derbyshire Police, under the leadership of Detective Inspector Emlyn Richards. DCI Emlyn Richards was a highly respected and celebrated officer within Derbyshire Constabulary. Earlier in the year, he'd been responsible for one of the force's earliest human trafficking investigations, which led to the conviction of two Polish brothers. Richards had gone on to head the team who saw convicted Izjali High, a serial sex attacker who targeted women in the city in 2017, as well as Matal Mustafa, who was responsible for the sadistic murder of his girlfriend, Sabia Khan. On that Friday morning, the day after the discovery of Jeff's body, banking transactions the first slew of CCTV and ANPR records tracing Jeff's car to Cardiff were arriving with DCI Richards and his team. These, along with conducting an interview with Zoe, in which he spoke about the text conversation with Dan and his injured hand, which was quickly confirmed by Derby Royal Hospital, a highly probable scenario emerged in which Dan had murdered his father, stolen money from his bank and fled, possibly to Cardiff. The problem was, by the time Cardiff came to view as a possible destination, Dan had already moved on. After dumping the car behind the hotel, he'd gone straight to Cardiff Railway Station and bought tickets to the next train to Glasgow. Leaving Wales that early evening and arriving in Scotland's Seton City the following morning. On arrival, in the same way as he'd maintained his anonymity by buying his tickets to Glasgow with cash, Dan purchased a single ticket, leaving in a few days' time, for Thurso the northernmost town on the British mainland. In the meantime, though, it was necessary for Dan to find somewhere to spend the next couple of days. As of that arrival in Glasgow, early on Friday the 2nd of December, his name hadn't yet appeared in the media. It wouldn't be until five minutes past nine in the morning, the same day that the news started to spread on social media, about police activity at the house on Marlebone Crescent, with Derbyshire Constabulary confirming that a body had been discovered at the address. Checking into a hotel in the city centre, Dan lay low for the next few days. He regularly monitored the internet, via his mobile phone, to keep up to date with the investigation, also researching police procedures for investigating a murder and hunting a suspect on the run. For a large part of his time, though, he kept his mobile switched off. As he hunkered down for his first night in Glasgow, 
the first full day of the investigation into the murder of Jeff Seggy was coming to a close. The brutal, bloody chaos of the front bedroom, where Jeff's body was discovered, was in contrast to the rest of the house. That's not to say that the rest of the house wasn't show home pristine. It wasn't, but it wasn't particularly an untidy home either. Two men, living without the civilising hand of a woman, simply had the effect on leaving the place, if not unloved, but unattended. Neither to the naked eye, nor the team of forensic specialists that spent days at the house on Marlborough Crescent, was there any trace anywhere in the house of the violence that had scarred the largest of the upstairs bedrooms. Forensic investigators noted that some effort had been made to clean some of the blood from around the bed. However, the ferocity of the attack and its impact proved the attempts pointless. With Dan missing, a huge amount of attention was paid to his bedroom, the only private space he had in the house. There were no signs that any violence had occurred there, nothing remarkable about the room at all. The obligatory gaming console seemed to be his only access to the outside world when he was hidden behind its closed door. It was during this examination of the room, though, that tucked between the side of his bed and the wall a particularly damning, incriminating piece of evidence of Dan's hand in his father's murder was discovered. A clear, stiff piece of plastic packaging. Untidily split along the side, only the package's card remained inside it. In a number of languages, it described what the package had once contained. A 12-inch knife. The discovery of the nice packaging, however, would prove nothing more than a hint when judged against the confirmation of Dan's probable part in his father's murder. Underneath the bed, pushed far underneath, with Jeff's empty wallet, and alongside it, a 12-inch kitchen knife and a hammer. This was a discovery that provided the final confirmation to investigators that Dan's status in the investigation simply wasn't as a victim, but as a suspect. Whether because of premeditation or desperation, Dan had stolen a march on the police, and as the ANPR network covering motorways and major roads, investigators were confident that within 24 hours of discovering Jeff's body, that Dan had headed for Cardiff. Beyond that, it would take a long and laborious trawl of local CCTV to gauge where, after leaving the M4 and joining the A48, the anonymous black Honda Civic had gone next. It would be days until the security footage from the car park came to light. The site operators responded to the public appeal regarding the car, a car that had been sat on there for days, accumulating parking fees at a rate of knots. It would be later still, when the footage of Dan, in jeans, black top and a bobble hat, buying a single train ticket from Cardiff to Glasgow had been discovered, and by the time the purchase of the ticket from Glasgow to Thurso came to light, his exact location was known to within a few square metres. The reason for such accuracy? He was in the custody of Derbyshire Police being questioned regarding the murder of his father.
without any real leads to Dan's whereabouts, beyond maybe Cardiff. The investigation worked with what resources they had to track him down. Friends of his, very good friends who were as shocked as the family at what had occurred, had early morning visits from the police in the immediate aftermath of Jeff's killing. Had they heard from Dan? Did they know where he was? Did they have any idea where he might have been headed? The problem was, nobody knew anything. Zoe, his girlfriend, was none the wiser either. The pair had been together for nearly two years, and she was entirely disbelieving that he could be responsible for what had occurred. In her mind, the police should be viewing him as a possible victim, that if he could be found he could explain all of this to the police and everything could be sorted out. He might have valuable information that would help identify who was really responsible. Working with what they had, officers persuaded Zoe to reach out to Dan, to message him expressing a concern and offer support, to try at least to find out where he was. Zoe agreed, but in the days that followed her messages to his phone on social media, they were all met with radio silence. She heard nothing and knew as little or probably less than detectives. That was until the 5th of December, when, early in the morning, Zoe received a response in which Dan, who was waking after his second night in Glasgow, expressed confusion and uncertainty as to what had happened, but confirmed his absolute trust in her. I don't think it's oxymoronic to say that while Zoe was to break Dan's trust, she didn't betray it. In very simple terms, she was worried for his safety. He was God knows where, thinking God knows what, and she honestly couldn't imagine a scenario in which he'd murdered his father. If he was to get back to Derby, he could explain as much as he knew and all would be fine. This could all come to an end. It's for that reason she immediately contacted the police, and within an hour was sat in a small office at the very heart of the investigation. In normal circumstances, I wouldn't read verbatim the available content from these communications. Most of the time, such things add little to the narrative of the case and can feel a little voyeuristic. These, though, speak something of an image of himself that Dan was presenting to a person who, through my research, have discovered he was closest to in all the world. Zoe. Friends, in hindsight, have challenging views of him and I'll go into those later, but for now, this is what he and Zoe shared. Dan, I honestly don't know what's happening. My heart's broken, but also is my mind. I've no idea what's happened in the past week. It's like I've been asleep for a week and I've woken up in a nightmare. I'm so scared and confused, I honestly don't know what to do. All I want is to hug you and the boys forever. Never forget that. You're not just my girlfriend, you're my best friend, and I love you. Zoe, I'm really worried about you, Dan. Please don't be scared. The boys and I want to see you. Where are you now? The question of where he was seems to have spooked Dan, as it was the following day before he replied, with Zoe all the time waiting in that small office, not knowing if or when he'd respond. Then, however... The following morning, he texts back. 
down. I really want to see you too, but I can't. I'm so far away and I can't remember how I got here. I have no money to get home. My wallet's gone and I'm all alone. I wish I was with you. I'm so sorry. I'm somewhere north. I wish I was okay, but I'm tired and alone and I feel so confused. I don't want you to worry. I'll be okay and I love you. I wish I could just come round and give you all a hug. I wish I could tell you I'm okay, but I'm not. I am safe, but I think I need to work out what to do. It was at this point that Zoe impressed upon Dan her love for him, her willingness to stand by him and the desire to help him in any way she could. Hearing this, Dan opened up to her and told her. He was in Glasgow. Arrangements were made, with the full oversight of the police, for her to drive up and to meet him. But Zoe didn't travel to Glasgow. She didn't leave Derby. In fact, she remained with the police until just after three minutes past five in the evening that day. In a final piece of CCTV footage, footage that had acted as a chronicle to this tragic case, a camera in the reception area of the Jury's Inn Hotel Glasgow, time-stamped 3.05pm on the 6th of December 2016, sees two uniformed officers approaching, then arresting Dan. Dressed in blue jeans, a dark top, but without his bubble hat. You can see him being led, his hands cuffed behind his back, through the hotel doors and out onto the street and into custody. Observant among you will have noticed that Mackworth, where Jeff and Dan lived, and where I am now, had played quite a large part in the last episode. Um, All Saints Church, the one devastated by the fire, actually, I think, still, still awaiting go ahead for the restoration work to begin, is um, is here. If you did, well done. If you didn't, well, um, try harder. That's my suggestion. The church was, and still, I suppose, is in the original Mackworth village, which dates back centuries. The estate where I am now, which has Marlebone Crescent, sits in a much newer part of the area. And the first phase of this estate was built, I think it was completed in I think the early to mid 50s. My dad is, is from Derby and apparently he's got cousins that live around here. Um, I've never met them, I don't think. Uh, like I've never met like whole swathes of family from my mum's side. In, uh, in Ireland. Dad did once bring me here though. I think he was trying to jog his memory and think about getting back in touch and 
one of the things you can't help noticing are the street names. Every one, almost every one, I think, on the new estate is named from somewhere in London. There's a, a Brompton Road, uh, a Mayfair Crescent, a Richmond Park Road, as well as obviously a, a Marlebone Crescent. There's also something that anyone familiar with any true crime documentaries set in small town America, although we're here in Derbyshire, will be familiar with. Um, a water tower. I am pretty sure I have never seen one anywhere else in the UK. I don't really know what they're for, but as is befitting, I suppose, for the city that gave the world Laura Croft, Derby isn't afraid to be as imaginative in the aesthetic as it is brilliant in the um, uh, engineering. The, the one thing that comes across when you chat to people around here is that a huge number of people knew Jeff. He was a match-going Derby County fan and as someone who was born and bred in Derby, his connections to the area run deep. As do his friendships and those who knew him, if not by name, then by sight at least, they all spoke kindly and generously of him. Talking to people though, the same doesn't seem to be said for Dan. Like his dad, he was Derby through and through. And while he was relatively well known, he had friends, he had Zoe, etc. There seems to be a side of Dan that has sort of escaped attention. It's a side of him that certainly people close to him think might explain something. And it's something that I think, well, certainly warrants some some investigation. At trial, Dan pleaded guilty to the murder of his dad, Jeff. In one regard, it could be seen as an act of kindness and remorse towards his mother and brother. It would mean the pair, who have remained very private people, were spared the ordeal of hearing the entirety of those horrendous seven days towards the ends of 2016 rehearsed and rehashed in public. You could also say that the sheer weight of the case against Dan was so overwhelming that he had little choice. Whatever the reason, one consequence of pleading guilty was that Dan's version of events was never interrogated in court. At interview, he provided no commentary as to what had happened or mitigation as to why. Falling back on the line he fed to Zoe as she begged for him to give himself up, he had no idea what had happened 
had no memory and were just confused and scared. When asked if he could explain his father's car being in Cardiff, some story about Jeff having planned to visit relatives in Wales was put forward, that the car was arriving in Cardiff at the same time as the police were entering Jeff's house, highlighted the absurdity of this scenario, a scenario that Dan was hoping they would all accept, hoping that all the way through his interview, if he sustained all temporary amnesia, all would be fine. Throughout and up until today, Dan hasn't provided any account of Jeff's murder, avoiding and dismissing the subject when asked by those close to him. A part of him has been compartmentalised and boxed off, never to be opened, never to be explained. Talking to those who knew Dan though, this compartmentalisation was something that after his arrest, they discovered had been going on for years. There's a crime and investigation episode of What the Killer Did Next on Jeff's murder. It follows the format of a lot of documentaries like this. There's a bit of a reconstruction, some talking heads from former police officers, local journalists and forensic psychologists. There's the obligatory comment from a local councillor or shop owner or resident gob on a stick, saying that everyone was really shocked at what had happened, as they never thought anything like that could happen in a place like this. And it was something like you'd see on a TV programme. I think you get the picture. The point of these documentaries, though, looking back on cases with the benefit of hindsight, should be that they re-evaluate what was known at the time and deliver a more informed conclusion. It was made three years after Jeff was murdered, and in it, and its position that I assume was largely derived from the media coverage at the time of the killing, is that Down was a quiet and unremarkable lad who worked looking after vulnerable people in a care home and kept himself to himself. What I've discovered, though, is that that wasn't quite the whole story. Dan's life was somewhat chaotic and had been for some time. He had troubles with money and the simple, uncomplicated life he was presenting as leading didn't really match reality. It's difficult to describe, but Dan seemed to be living two separate lives. To Zoe, he was a diligent boyfriend who adored her children and worked in a care home. To friends, very close friends he'd known for years, spent time alongside his dad with and with whom loved him. He ran a successful carpet fitting business. Now, a little white lie that you tell to bolster your image in front of your friends, friends who might be enjoying a more successful career, that's one thing, but the extent of Dan's deceit ran deep. I've even reason to believe that Jeff thought his son was a partner in the thriving imaginary firm. Dan at one time worked in the bakery department at the local Sainsbury's. It's not unusual for people to leave such jobs and move into a different field to pursue what they'll be going to do for their long-term career. When Dan left there, he said he was going to set up with a friend as a carpet fitter and for the year or so that followed, up until Jeff's murder, that was what he led almost everyone to believe. Dan would be away from home for long periods of time, claiming to be on a large job somewhere else in the country, while in reality he was working in a care home and staying with Zoe. He invented names of colleagues he was working with, 
contract he'd secured, talked of plans for expansion and recruitment. Dan was actually a carpet fitter immediately after leaving Sainsbury's, but for reasons unknown, left after just two weeks. It's not hard to imagine the strain and stress leading such a double life would have placed him under. Constantly vigilant to being found out, fearing his lie would be exposed in the image of himself, which he carefully crafted, would be in ruins. Dan even kept Zoe separate from his closest friends, insulating the fantasy portrayed to the world from the reality he lived with her. What does this tell us about Dan? his relationship with Jeff and what really occurred the night of the murder. I've heard plenty of stories about Dan researching this episode, things he told people about himself, things he said about Jeff. As someone pointed out though, as Dan was the only person who'd heard these things from, it's possible to know which, if any, were true. I share these discoveries not to make any great claims or speculate as to why Dan murdered Jeff. That remains a mystery. I share them simply to present you with a slightly more nuanced, slightly more complex image of Dan that has been seen before. At the sentencing hearing at Nottingham Crown Court and the end of May 2017, Dan was entirely unemotional. On entering the court and taking his place in the dock, he didn't look to the public gallery where his mother, Cheryl, and his brother were sat. Instead, and for the duration, his eyes rarely shifted from either the judge, Gregory Dickinson QC, or his own barrister, Michael Alty QC. Alty offered no explanation or mitigation on behalf of his client, simply saying that Dan had been assessed by three separate psychiatrists, none of whom were able to assist him in his trial. It's hard to imagine the suffering Cheryl Seggy, Dan's mum, is going through, he concluded. What she begs for, I cannot tell her. And that is why Daniel Segi did this. DCI Emlyn Richards, who led the investigation, spoke to the press just after Dan was sentenced to life imprisonment, with a minimum to be served of 20 years. The family, he said, feel torn by the loss of their father and friend, but also that of a son and brother, who will now spend a large part of his life in prison. That sentence reflects the gravity of this crime. It can only be hoped that at some point Daniel may choose to provide some solace to his family by explaining the reason behind those tragic events. As far as I've been able to discover, Dan still hasn't explained what happened that night on Marleybone Crescent. Rumours, gossip, wild speculation have filled the void. What I've shared of what I've been able to find out I've had verified by a couple of sources so I don't think fit into that category of gossip. He doesn't provide any answers though. Maybe just gives you a little bit more context. Jeff's murder wasn't a case of a good lad just snapped as the established story would have it. Dan was a complicated individual whose life was made all the more challenging by his secrets and lies. He was someone whose image of himself shifted depended on the company, leading to a compartmentalised and probably quite stressful existence.
as far as I've been able to discover, Dan still hasn't explained what happened that night on Marlborough Crescent. Rumours, gossip, wild speculation have all filled the void. What I've shared of what I've been able to find out, I've had verified by a couple of sources, so I don't think it's I don't think it fits into the category of gossip. It doesn't provide any answers though, maybe just slightly more context. Jeff's murder wasn't a case of a good lad just snapped as the established surety would have it. Dan was a complicated individual whose life was made all the more challenging by his secrets and his lies. He was someone whose image of himself shifted depending on this company, leading to a compartmentalised and probably quite a stressful day-to-day -day existence. I've just been chatting to some people outside the Kingsway pub. It's a, it's a big old barn of a place near Marlebone Crescent. There's a central green that sits in the middle of the estate and the pub is on the other side of that green from where Jeff and Dan lived and apparently Jeff had been known to pop in once or twice. From what I can gather from them and the other people I've spoken to, Jeff was just an ordinary honest bloke. He lived an uncomplicated life. He'd go to Benidorm with his friends every summer, went regularly to see Derby, he was almost 60 and throughout his life he's made friends and, and kept them along the way. Across the road from the pub there's a, a parade of shops and next to the bookies is the Happy Garden Chinese takeaway where Dan picked up the food from the night he murdered Jeff. What strikes me stood here is that nearly 48 hours Dan would have been wandering between his home, the bank, the Happy Garden Chinese, McDonald's and all the time his dad was lying dead at home. This is such a, an ordinary roundabout on such an ordinary estate. Some, some of the, some of the, some of the media named Dan the takeaway killer, and there was bafflement that he could maintain such a, an ordinary life during those couple of days eat takeaways in the house that he'd murder his dad in and Jeff's body only being upstairs to me it seems Dan had spent years compartmentalising his life keeping one 
part secret from the other the crime uh, investigations documentary has psychologists uh, pathologizing every little expression on his face in all the CCTV footage uh, almost marveling at how he maintains this mask Dan had been hiding parts of his life every hour of every day it was just how he lived I think that seen in that context in his uh, near mastery of siloing each stream of himself it makes the the mask of ordinariness really that he wore directly after Jeff's murder uh, a little more understandable and maybe a little less of a mystery it was for want of a better word a kind of um, coping mechanism he'd used before and would use again as as far as answering the central question though why did he do it I honestly don't have a clue and until Dan speaks well we probably never will the question to ask when he does though is how can someone who seems to be such a proficient liar how can he trust anything he has to say